Well, thanks for tuning in to podcast number two of the Inside Item of Civil Engineering with Russell King. Obviously, if you're tuning in to this podcast, you didn't find the first one too unbearable. And for me as well, probably learn a few lessons, namely don't do it when you're half asleep because you've only had four hours sleep the night before because you've got a six-week-old newborn. And probably the second thing, don't drink the best part of a bottle of Chilean Sauvignon Blanc because... Uh, by the, by the end, you end up spending more time editing out my half-drunk questions than the actual, actual interview itself. So instead, this one was done at 7.30 in the morning with two very large cups of coffee. So probably the exact opposite. And probably You can probably detect the shaking um, given that I don't deal with caffeine too well. So I trust you enjoy show number two. My guest is Trevor Yeoman from Caliber Consulting. As always, enjoy. So Trevor, here we are. So using your best elevator pitch in 30 seconds or less, tell me about your job. Oh, good morning, Russell. That's a pretty interesting opening question. Um, I guess uh, as the manager for uh, the Adelaide office, um, Mm -hmm. I I have a huge responsibility across a number of professional services, but my actual forte is asset management and really that, that's one of the engineering management type fields that is coming to the fore at the moment and effectively uh, the challenges that go with that is internal uh, promotion and, and teaching staff around mm-hmm. me about what that entails as well as marketing to clients as to what that can they can achieve with various techniques and uh, FordWorks programming etc. So pretty diverse environment apart from the technical side of things I also have to manage a number of staff as well as the actual business itself and of course uh, you know when you involve people anything can happen Russell. <laughs> Animal and pets. Oh that's right. So Caliber a new to Adelaide when did it start up here? Well I suppose Caliber as a company has been in Adelaide for uh, a number of years um, but because of the nature of the business we're split into a number of separate companies almost. Um, okay. Caliber Resources was in Adelaide for about four years uh, and still is by virtue of that, but mm-hmm. works with companies like Senex, uh, Santos, and BHP. Yeah. Whereas uh, Caliber Consulting, which is the company that I represent in Adelaide, mm-hmm. um, has been based everywhere but Adelaide for the last, oh, gee, 30 odd years, I suppose. Uh, I should yeah. also mention that Caliber used to be Brown Consulting, and um, they were recently bought out by Caliber and are now Caliber Consulting as part of that. Yeah, okay, so you would have had some existing client base through the other Absolutely, that, that, that's right. So with those um, locally based clients in um, resources, we were able to open a number of doors and, and sort of hit the ground running to some respect. But having said that, the resource sector operates completely different to the background that I've typically been involved in, which has been local government and state government infrastructure. Yeah. So how do you find then given you would have had some existing clients but you've had to get new ones like obviously from the accent you're not from here how have you found recruiting new clients doing your sales pitch getting out there when you have you don't necessarily have the contacts that you've had yeah, I suppose that that's a good question, Russell. I mean, um, I've only been with Calibre a very short time, and I used to work for another company previously in Adelaide, but um, I've only been in Australia two and a half years, um, and uh, I came to Australia from New Zealand, but obviously from my accent, I'm not from New Zealand. I, I've got a South African accent, but yeah. uh, I started my working career in the UK 
with a, a local um, council over there, Hammersmith and Fulham Council, um, who was seconded uh, basically by uh, Transport for London to undertake the whole of London infrastructure asset management side of things. Mm-hmm. So following that route, I, I've basically ended up in South Australia um, on the ground with uh, knowing almost nobody and trying to develop a field that typically isn't well received uh, at the moment and also uh, without um, any sort of uh, support really as such. But having said that, um, the way to tackle those sort of situations is just throw yourself into the mix. There's no mm-hmm. there's no magic formula to achieving these kinds of things. Um, within the private sector, you've got to get yourself out there, you've got to get talking to people. And I find that the one thing that's quite... Um, I guess welcoming in, in South Australia and Australia as a whole is that people are willing to at least talk to you and have a chat about your various experiences across you know three different countries and continents in, in some yeah, cases yeah. Um, as to what other people do and, and the thing is whether it's local government here the UK New Zealand um, South Africa wherever you go we're all facing the same problems yeah. and I think if we can share different techniques and ways of achieving an outcome um, or just provide a slight point of difference, that's what people want to hear about. Because typically in the local market, you can get stuck in doing the same thing the same way, and of course you'll get the same result. Rather have a look at what else is possible and find out, you know, if I did this slightly differently, maybe I'll get a slightly different response and that'll allow me to make a better decision about what I do going forward. Yeah, that, that takes local government engineers out of their comfort zone. No <laughs> trade, so, uh, well, th- that's right. And I think taking people out of their comfort zone is exactly what we need to do because unless you, you push the boundaries and you, you try something new, why would anything change, Russell? How do you... Okay, so local government, say, you talk to one or two people that say, go talk to these people, I guess because everyone networks. What about in the private sector where... You've got competing areas. How, how have you built some of the networks there? Just ringing sure. around, phoning around? Um, well, there are various organisations like Consult Australia that host a number of functions throughout the year. And you can go and meet people. And, and I guess the thing to note is that although we're in competing industries in some cases, um, we're all still people that have studied something similar. We all have a passion for what we do. And it's in our interest to talk to each other about what's going on. Yes, we won't always win every project. And yeah neither will they but it's important to at least have that um, transparency and that openness about what's happening in the market um, however there are a number of other consultancies and that that complement what we do and we often try to talk to those people about getting together because you can't have all the skills in one place at one time for various things and you never know when the next project might require a combined effort yeah so what what how do you approach someone so say you see i see you got a wolf blast uh hard hat there sure see someone from wolf blast at the consulting engineer absolutely how so do you, how do you approach them do you well, have a set spiel or <laughs> I, I, I guess it doesn't start off like that it, it all grows a little bit organically where you, mm-hmm. you know you might end up at a lunch or something like that sitting next to somebody and you'd say oh you know hello I'm so and so and the way you'd go through a typical you, mm-hmm. you know interaction with somebody that you're meeting for the first time you don't dive straight into the you know how much work have you got when are you gonna offer me a job kind of thing because yeah. that's guaranteed to get you a backhand right away um, and it's best to just have that friendship and let things evolve and yeah. people naturally will ask the question what is it that you do and that gives you a, a segue into promoting what it is that you or your company does at that point in time but 
Um, certainly, uh, there's no recipe for success in that. Uh, with every single event, Russell, it, it, it's really dependent upon the person that you're talking to and whether they see an opportunity at that stage. Um, you might invite them for a coffee or a lunch at a later date to progress those talks as well. Similarly, they might also say, oh, look, I, I don't really think that that's a, an opportunity right now. Well, that, that's what I wondered. Is it kind of like, are there rules, like with dating, where you see a guy at the lunch on the Wednesday giving yeah. you a card? Yeah. When are you allowed to call him? Oh, well, I mean, if, I guess if we follow the dating model, what are you supposed to leave it, like three days or something? I don't know. I've never understood. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it's quite the same thing. Um, you know, in business terms... A project if they've got something now that they clearly were interested in you want to yeah. strike while the iron's hot and be phoning the next day and saying Let, let's get together let's have a chat about that kind of thing but um, at the same time if there wasn't anything tangible that you could take away you you don't want to be hounding them for the next catch-up because you as in the dating yeah. term you just come across as desperate well how do you find the whole sales pitching and, and, and that side of the business because yeah. obviously setting up new here yep it's not like you've been here 20 years and you're just getting into the grind and what, right. what's the balance between actual work and then the actual networking sure is it is it 50 50 and well i don't think you can be as rigid as that you know it really comes down to um i guess securing work first and foremost and in order to do that there's a number of techniques that you can employ to to get your I guess runs on the board so to speak and that might be getting out there knocking on doors doing the cold calling which I have to say um, I don't think anybody likes it it's really difficult yeah. and awkward phoning somebody for the first time and effectively you're a salesman you know yeah. it, it, you get the phone slammed in your ear a lot and people particularly like if I call my internet help desk there's yeah. some South Africans so they're probably <laughs> like uh, it's Trevor here I don't have a problem with my internet I'm fine <laughs> Um, I, I suppose it, it could be a little bit like that, except in this instance, we're, we're trying to sell you something and, and everyone knows the state of play in that instance. Um, the, the only reason why we're meeting is potentially to work together. Um, you know, I'm not coming around to, you know, offer you my sympathies or anything like that. And effectively, we, we need to look at, you know, getting our name out there, talking to people, find someone who's got something that's of interest to us and then talk a little bit further about that, wait for an opportunity to tender or quote mm -hmm. for it, um, maybe even assist with scoping the project. Um, yeah, I guess that that's the one part of it, but you you don't typically see enough focus on that area within engineering. Yep. People that come from an engineering background typically look at it and go, well, oh, I'm only here to do the technical stuff, I want to do the, the, the design and that. Someone has to win that work. Yeah, well, that's what I wondered with inputting on, because obviously you're building up the business here, so that's something, particularly because you're small, you expect that of the guys that you're putting on? Yeah, I suppose within consulting engineering, um, everybody uh, has an onus on them to, to sell the business to some extent, yep. um, but certainly as a manager, that's my primary role to ensure that people stay engaged and productive, because at the end of the day, I know it's an old saying, but time is money, Russell. Yeah, When we talk about marketing and, and actual work delivery, there is a balance to be achieved, um, but you can't put enough focus on actually getting out there and getting your name in front of people. Um, 
I, I work to about 70% um, billing usually, which yeah. means that I'm productive on jobs. However, that's not always possible because I have to write tenders, I have to have meetings with people, and typically it'll take you seven to 10 meetings before you get a job out of someone. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's the case, and I'm trying to win enough work, it basically means that I need to have... That's like seven to 10 hours. That's right, minimum. Of, of unpaid time. Well, that's right, you know, and effectively I've got to get out there and actually um, find seven to 10 people that want to talk to me every week. Yeah. And of course, that might be seven to 10 hours of actual meeting time, but some of my clients might be an hour or two hour drive away from here. So that could be a whole day. <laughs> and you get back and you think, well, yeah. gee, I haven't actually achieved much today because you can't quantify the result of that until you win a job from them. But yeah. the reality is that day of investment of going to talk to somebody who's out in the middle of nowhere might actually result in a $100,000 job. Yeah, and that's the part of the business that I think accounting can't really focus on. We have very um, defined, uh, you know, utilization rates. We we know what sort of rates go down against a project, mm -hmm. and you know, like any good business, we track that, and we can tell. You know, you, you might be fifty percent of the way through the project, but ninety percent of the way through the budget, yeah. um, and that that's a problem for for you know a project manager, I guess. Yeah, that is interesting. So with some of those, so you mentioned about driving out to some of the rural places, rural clients. How do you, how do you find? How do you think they find it at the moment? Particularly because they're out of the way. They've probably had one or two people that they've just sure. dealt with historically that the place has dealt with for thirty Absolutely. or forty years. How do you find breaking it into the rural That's market? That's probably the hardest one, clients, to be fair. Um, because as you mentioned, people out there have only ever seen one or two consultants because of the remoteness of those locations. Um, people that have been around a long time will have been out there <coughs> and, and built that relationship. Typically, these are small communities. Uh, and if you come from a small community like I do, um, you, you know that people have uh, built trust you know, based on a time friendship, I guess. And as a new person who shows up in that community, as myself with a different sort of accent, um, you're immediately, I guess, guilty before proven innocent, you know. Right. So you, you walk in the door, and, and I've had this at some of these um, remote clients, that um, the first sort of option on the table is, oh, we already have an incumbent consultant. And I'm already on the back foot at that point, because I know that whatever I say from that point going forward they've stopped listening effectively so you've got to turn it around to a situation where I'm not selling them something and they don't feel that they're being pressured into any arrangement yep. so I might typically start to ask them a bit about their job and what <clears throat> they do as a council and what you know sort of issues they're having and that's the type of meeting that you've got to tread very carefully because if you try and push an issue or, or a job or uh, a skill set it's gonna be, it's gonna be um, kicked back and in tears it will end in tears um, and it's the kind of thing that you will have to go back seven to ten times so that they know that you're there for the long term and that you're going to be there um, in in the future when they need you man it is just like dating <laughs> <laughs> well there you go Russell you get nothing for nothing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so you found yourself in South Australia SA same as South Africa. How did, how did it all start? Or how have you found yourself here? Where did it start from uni, first job, right. and then to here? 
Well, um, you, you best sit back for this one, Russell. This yeah. is a wild ride, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I, I started uni in South Africa. I grew up in a in a country called Swaziland, which is a little landlocked kingdom in Southern yep. Africa. Think Lion King type of stuff, mm. you know. Um, anyway, the reality is uh, I studied geographical sciences at, at uni, um, which is a mix of traditional geography as well as uh, socioeconomic geography, and then more of the hydrology, soil science, um, geomorphology type stuff behind that. And I specialised in GIS and remote sensing as part of an honours degree. Yep. Now, you're probably wondering how did I get into engineering from that, and for a while I actually wondered that too, because... Um, <clears throat> I was hell-bent on saving the planet and I was going to be, you know, a GIS uh, contractor in the forestry industry and helping the planet survive. But it, uh, Which is interesting because I know there was one guy we, I worked with before and he was from Swaziland as well and people are always like, oh, there are lots of trees and animals and he's like, no, the people shot them, ate them all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, is there anything left to save? Uh, I, I think it's um, probably a little bit like that. I, I should point out that you're most likely to see wildlife and animal parks these days, I yeah. suppose. Um, most of that little country is uh, agriculture and mining and, and a bit of forestry, I suppose. So radically okay. different from the whole Lion King type yeah, situation, yeah. Russell. But um, yeah, so to go back to the whole, uh, I guess, tertiary education that I, I went through, um, I moved to the UK and for a bit of adventure after I finished my degree. Is that common for people in South Africa? Because um, it seems to know a lot of people in the engineering circles have come from, uh, even though you didn't come from an engineering sure. circle. Sure. I, I guess um, it, it might be a lot of people in South Africa have uh, British ancestry or European ancestry, and so they'd like to go back and experience wh where their forefathers and mothers yeah. perhaps came from. Um, in my in my case, I guess I wanted to trace the trails that my brother had uh, achieved earlier mm -hmm. in, in his career. Um, a lot of South Africans do tend to do that. It's a it's a very different uh, overseas experience, you know, yeah. for, for them is is a big part of their rite of passage into adulthood. But a lot of them also return home, um, and I guess that's where I've become a bit wayward and continued to travel the globe and, and do a few things differently. So with your your last name is Yeomans. Yes, Yeoman so without the is, is that the Dutch? No, Yeoman is the, uh, if you ever make it to the Tower of London, in London, of course, um, oh, okay. there is the um, the guards that guard the Tower of London. Uh, that mm. just sounds stupid. Um, <laughs> if you ever get to London, Russell, the Tower of London itself is guarded by Yeomans, who are the actual uh. Uh, Queen's guards. Um, uh, and I believe that the heritage comes from a Scottish uh, tribe who were particularly yeah. fierce and were employed for their, uh, I guess, battle hardiness. Um, my family immigrated from uh, the UK in 1876 to South Africa on, yeah. uh, by ship, of course, in those days. And um, yeah, but more recently than that, my grandfather was in the RAF in the Second World War and um, he, he set up base in Cape Town and then moved up to Zimbabwe after that, which is, I guess, how yeah, I came okay. to be. But, yeah, so we all come from a European background, I guess, and some of us are interested in exploring that. And when I got to London, I wasn't typically all that sure about what I was going to do. University leaves you with these ideologies and you're going to yeah. be, like, the saviour of various things out there. But... Um, I just knew I wanted to work in GIS, and that was all yeah. I was interested in. And I found it really hard going because uh, most countries will ask you if you have local experience in the market. And 
it's pretty hard to get local experience if you haven't had a job there. So you have to wait until you get an opportunity to, you know, prove yourself. Mm -hmm. And for me, that opportunity came with uh, the borough of Hammersmith and Fulham. And they had a contract with Transport for London, as I mentioned, to undertake the infrastructure condition assessments of all these networks. To me, I didn't really care too much about the condition side of things at that point. I was more interested in being able to use uh, GIS on a tablet and actually go out and do the condition assessments on these thousands of assets on the yeah, network. Which is quite different to trees and saving the planet. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and it's funny how your ideology tends to go out the window when your last pounds are leaving your bank account. And so you <laughs> sacrifice ideology for career. Yeah, yeah. There's a bitumen everywhere. <laughs> well, that, that's right, you know, and um, I was pretty fortunate. I was a manager of a small team. Um, that of four basically and we had to complete all 33 boroughs every year for the whole of London and there's a fair bit of data that goes into that Russell and that yeah. without knowing it that was the beginning of my asset management career I suppose yeah which led to and then you ended up in New Zealand at some well stage, not, not straight away uh, effectively uh, I was um, approached by a company in the UK uh, who was of New Zealand origin mm. that uh, offered me a position to go and help write asset management plans with various councils and home counties um, back mm -hmm. in 2005 2006 uh, this was a, a big push in the UK um, all councils were suddenly required to have an asset management plan that threw them into overdrive I knew nothing about um, writing asset management plans, but I had a really good manager at the time, a guy called Luke Meacham, who effectively showed me how to put these documents together and what questions needed to be asked. And I remember going to a meeting with him at, oh, I forget the name of the council now, but uh, we had this big meeting and the CEO was there and I, I thought I was just there to listen and um, you know observe and take diligent type notes. And at the end of the meeting, the question was raised, well, when can you start with the actual production of this document? And through the haze, uh, I remember hearing Luke say something along the lines of, well, Trevor will be back next week for a couple of days and he can get straight into helping write the life cycle uh, management plans for, for the report. Right. And I, I smiled and nodded, I guess, like a deer in the headlights. And afterwards, I asked him, well, how am I supposed to do this? And he said, don't worry. Here's everything you need to know. Here's all the questions and that. You just got to go and conduct the interviews and write up the reports and I'll, <laughs> I'll smooth it out. And that's pretty much how I got into it. I, I had no idea what was coming before the meeting. And after the meeting, suddenly I found myself as a supposed expert in asset management in the UK. <laughs> Probably not the story you want to hear if yeah. you're the client in this uh, relationship. Well, what was the good uptake? Were, were asset plans... I, I know here... Yep. In Adelaide, probably at the start, they were written and read, but not not necessarily tied back to long term plans. Yeah, was there a good uptake of them straight away in the UK? Was what you're well, writing yeah, extremely that, effective? I think there, there was a good uptake in it because it was a dual edged sword for many councils. One, there was this um, policy and I guess legislation that was driving the need to have it. And then on the other side of things, councils were being pushed to prove that they actually needed this funding for various assets and how many assets. And as strange as it might sound, but for something as simple as streetlights, 
um, a council wouldn't have previously known how many different types of street lighting they had on their network or just the sheer volume of street lighting. Yeah. And that leads you to, to think, well, how can you put together a budget for what the replacement and, and various other bits and pieces? There, there wasn't. It was just a completely reactive environment. And for the first time ever, these councils were being challenged. We're not just going to give you your previous year's budget plus inflation for the maintenance of this network. You now need to work to a leaner model in terms of delivering a service and actually justify how you're going to spend that money. Yes. You know, and I guess that's probably a situation that uh, a good portion of the world has been through after the GFC. Money isn't as free and available as it used to be. Uh, countries like New Zealand that have typically always struggled financially in this respect to have done asset management by way of just due diligence, um, whereas countries like the US have been cash flush for so many years, built infrastructure and really um, might have suffered the consequence in latter years for not understanding how much they own and, and what condition it is in currently. Yeah, when it was last done there, there were whole wastewater treatment plants we'd visit that were starting to rusting out. That's right. And, and roads roads falling apart and you talk to the people, how are you going to fund replacing this? And they said, we don't even know. That's right. It's going to keep running it till it falls apart, sort and, it out when we get there. And, and there's a really good documentary actually called The Crumbling of America that details yeah. that sort of infrastructure decay that's happening. And, and you'll <clears> see it on the news where, you know, various bridges are falling down and the, the concrete highways that were typically built in the 50s and 60s that connected America are now at the end of their useful lives. And you know, oh, concrete... I'll show you some of the overpasses in Montreal <laughs> and Toronto, and you would you would not drive on an overpass. I'm sure. If you can see the, I'm sure the rebar's the exposed all exposed. Rio yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Terrible. Yeah. It's classy. Yeah. So I, I suppose going back to the story, um, after doing that for a number of years and writing various plans for councils in, in the UK, I I got shipped to New Zealand by um, way of an opportunity that came up in Auckland. And uh, what I noticed immediately was that all the stuff that I had been writing and trying to influence in the UK was suddenly in an operational environment and to a much higher level in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And I was finding myself having to upskill in a number of, <clears throat> I guess, systems and sectors and an understanding of local um, condition assessments, etc. Um, and within six months, I was seconded to an alliance called the Auckland Motorway Alliance, uh, led by the New Zealand Transport Association. Yeah. And that was a great opportunity because that organisation was effectively um, put in place to inspire and I guess push the envelope about what can be done on networks across New Zealand. And it gave us the freedom to experiment and try new things. That whole point of doing something differently. Yeah, would they manage all roads or just main roads? No, so... How, how did the setup work there? I guess, um, to, to give you a bit of background in that respect, uh, New Zealand has a number of network management contracts for their national motorway network or freeway network yep. um, that are divided up and uh, managed by different consultants in partnership with a contractor and the New Zealand government itself. Um, within that, you then have your local authorities like your councils that would typically have a consultant and a contractor engaged to manage those local road networks as well. Which is quite different to here where everyone, all the councils manage their own network, have some of their own crews. That's right. Quite a different model. That's right. So councils... Was that, was that a bit of an adjustment? I mean, was the UK 
similar? I guess, no, the UK was very much like it is here in Australia, Russell. Okay. Um, and it was quite an adjustment because for the first time I found as a consultant that we were now actually managing entire networks. It was that operational management and basically through that virtue, we were being pushed by government and by local authorities to be better at what was delivered on site. Yeah. So you had to work for your dollars, um, which is a good model, I suppose. But at the same time, it's um, it, it, it can be quite um, stressful. <laughs> yeah. And did you get, ever get caught up in the politics? Because you're supposed to be running it independently. Yeah. I suppose not me personally, but I was aware of situations where, you know, we'd have a defined and reasoned Ford Works program for resealing and there's always councillors and elected members that choose to try and influence these programs to, I guess, promote their, their political careers in some respect. Yeah. And uh, you'll end up resurfacing a road five years before it's due. And, and in fact, uh, there was an instance <laughs> where I remember hearing about yeah. a, a particular road that in New Zealand that had been resurfaced twice in five years uh, by request of the local MP. Wow. I know when, when I was in uh, Northern Ireland last... They'd have, the, have the same, they'd have the lists, but what it spat out of the computer wasn't necessarily what you could do because if it came up that 90% of your roads were down on the border in a particularly uh, green side of the area, they're like, well, we've got to redistribute that so that it doesn't seem like we're... You, you not only had local councils to contend with, you had yes. uh, differing religious opinions... So you're balancing across three fields. That, that's right. You can't be um, shown to be providing favoritism to a certain group or community. Yeah. And, and I guess that's the level of service that you've got to educate your community on and uh, effectively be transparent in what you're trying to deliver to them at the time. And, and that's quite tricky because uh, no matter how much logic and, yeah. and uh, transparency you provide at times, people... Uh, people still believe that they're getting the raw end of the stick, I guess, or rough end of the stick, I should say. And then at what stage, so probably getting away from the work side of things, your wife is South African as well. Yes. Where does she fit into the picture? Oh, wow. Okay, now we have to retrace our steps a little bit, Russell. Um, I met my wife when I was in the UK um, working for uh, the borough of Hammersmith and Fulham again. Yep. And I, I should point out that Particularly, London Council seemed to be, uh, I guess, blessed with a number of Antipodeans working for them. <laughs> Although some of the locals might not see it that way. Um, and in fact, just a segue here, I remember having uh, an engineering manager there who we had had these group meetings about once a month, and he would pick on the one poor Kiwi surveyor in the group and say to him, you know, haven't you made your money yet to buy your house in New Zealand? When are you going home? <laughs> yeah. And I, I laughed initially until I realised that he was dead serious. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose it must feel like that with all these Antipodeans working over there. But it's a great culture. It's a great environment to be part of. Um, and I guess the saying to, to steal a phrase from the, the walkabout pubs is, we're here for a, a good time, not a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and we play hard, we work hard. But I, I got dragged to the pub as you do on a Friday in, in the UK and probably every other day of the week too. Um, and someone said to me, oh, have you met the new South African girl? I wasn't 
out there looking for a wife or a South African partner at the time, but yeah, yeah. got introduced to my wife at, at the local council Friday piss-up, I suppose. And first thing she probably thought as a new South African is like, have you met this other South African? She's like, I've travelled 20,000 miles <laughs> to meet non-South Africans. No, I don't want to meet Trevor. Yeah, and I suppose that's where my marketing skills started to develop, <laughs> Russell, because uh, as far as a first... Um, interaction went you you probably wouldn't have found someone that was more uh bored with that yeah. <laughs> first meeting she you know shook my hand and said hello and that but i don't think we said more than three words to each yeah. other after that first meeting and it was only by way of crossing over in the hallways and that at council that we ended up chatting yeah. you know a bit more complain about the lousy uk weather and then form a bond over that oh probably not uh, more along the lines of where we're going to travel to next you know yeah. and, uh, we seem to have similar ideas and things we wanted to do and uh, and i guess that's where you learn that things have to develop organically for uh, a long-term relationship to happen yeah. so she then moved over to new zealand with you that's right yeah we'd moved in together by this point and had lived together for quite some time and um we were interested in trying something new and we were open to both Australia and New Zealand. It just turns out that New Zealand had a job opportunity for us first and foremost. Oh, and you worked for the same same company? That's then? right, that's right. So uh, it was quite neat. We actually got to move with the same company twice. Well, how did you actually find that? In terms of, well, you kind of, you get up in the morning, have your breakfast, yep. you hop in the car to go to work. I, I suppose it helps that we and work. You're in... seeing the same person every single day. Well, yes, but we also worked in different offices, so ah, that that okay, helped. And okay. working in different parts of the engineering fields, uh, I suppose that that also put some distance between us. So on a day-to-day basis, we had very little interaction on projects, or you know, even just conversation, which helps. Yeah. What. what isn't that interesting is that conversations over dinner can be a bit boring because yeah. she'll be talking about LATM type studies and and I'm talking to her about infrastructure funding so yeah. absolutely riveting stuff I'm sure the kids will love it yeah and you probably struggle to have excuses when she wants to catch up for lunch yeah. and you're like oh I'm kind of busy she's like I've already looked in our shared calendar you don't have anything on yeah it's, it's pretty hard to to make excuses in that, that context for us you know um, I'm more likely to be dragged to to have a look at a new uh, parking bay that's been installed than, than yeah. a lunch meeting though I have to say yeah, that's it. that's interesting so would you have any tips for someone that oh. is uh dating a fellow co-worker yeah <laughs> I, I guess the, the thing is leave your personal interactions with others uh, at work uh, and only talk about the the actual things that you're involved in doing because okay. it's quite easy to get involved in ossif uh, office gossip um, and yeah. that's never a good thing really so just keep it professional okay well at least yeah at least you're vaguely in the same field area i know i'd sometimes go home and talk about my bitumen user group meeting and <laughs> i get almost laughed at for, what can there be to talk about bitumen there, quite well, a lot actually there, there is <laughs> quite actually. a lot <laughs> yeah, i think people dismiss that concept far too easily yeah <laughs> who'd have thought binder film thickness could be something a dinner conversation <laughs> Yeah, so in working for these different places and moving around, going up the chain, at, at what stage have you been, have you kind of sought out any leadership training or management training or in a lot of the places that there have been schemes that have helped to mentor you? Yeah, I think um, most of the organisations that I've worked for, Russell, have had 
uh, mentoring type programs in place to get you to strive for a higher ending, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and effectively, I, I've, I've challenged myself by taking on a master's, which I undertook in New Zealand through the Auckland um, University of Auckland. Mm-hmm. And that was more to consolidate this engineering knowledge that I've gained over the last 10, 12 years into something that was formal that I could actually say, I, I do know something about yeah. what we're doing. And, and I'm not an engineer, I should put that out there again, but um, undertaking a master's in, in engineering management was one of the best things I did because it, it gave me those guiding principles for project management, lean management, mm-hmm. um, highway design, uh, various other things, asset management was part of that. And um, really, by doing that, it, it enabled me to take on I guess, uh, slightly higher strategic thinking jobs um, and to understand what's required in terms of managing but being a leader. I think yes. that's more important. You Being a leader is more important than being a manager. You want to lead by example Definitely. Yeah, two and inspire things. people. Whereas yeah. manager is more a term that I think belongs in the 80s. And I, I know people might disagree with me on this, but, mm-hmm. you know, if you really want people to succeed, you've got to give them a bit of leeway um, and not micromanage them. Micromanagement doesn't achieve anything and you, and you end up with people that don't feel confident in their own abilities. People have to make mistakes, that's the point, I guess. Um, in terms of actually going for jobs, uh, I found that the easiest way to climb the ladder is to just be open and approachable to new opportunities. Even if it's not exactly the way you thought your life was gonna go, I mean. Let me go back to the point of I started out in GIS and remote yeah. sensing. Yep. Now I work almost exclusively in an engineering field. Um, and, and I've got here by just being open to possibilities and trying things. And sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't, you know. And I very quickly found that out that um, in a previous role that I had as an information manager, I, I didn't really enjoy managing data that much. Yep. I, I could do it. I might not have been the best person at it, and I gained a lot of knowledge through it, but I don't enjoy it. I think you start to understand yourself a bit better when you get to that 10-year mark in your career, and you start to think about, do I want to be involved in a technical capacity or in a business capacity or in a leadership-type capacity? And I think, for me, business and leadership are probably my qualities that I... I, I'm stronger at I Yeah, suppose. certainly moving around, I think you go better at finding what are your strengths and where are some of the niche niche areas right. where I can start to well, that, focus that's, on. So. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I, I can see situations that you can use people that are technically astute uh, in various fields that can deliver a, a really good outcome. But unless I put the right people in the right room, you won't achieve an overall strategic goal. And that's... That's the challenge that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that's how I came to Australia, really. I, I was offered an opportunity to take on um, developing asset management in South Australia and Northern Territory. But only I had just been here on holiday recently and quite yep. liked Adelaide and thought, well, we'll give it a go. And said yes, we packed up our life. I honestly thought that we were going to live in New Zealand forever. Yeah. Um, packed up our life, moved to South Australia and started again, which is not an easy thing to do. But... Having said that, it opened up numerous opportunities in terms of being able to grow a team, meet loads of clients, meet people like yourself, Russell, in the industry, and being able to share stories. And I think that's part of the, the enjoyment for me is that you know people benefit from things that I can share and I benefit from their local knowledge. You know, um, 
and, and through virtue of doing that, I was um, afforded this opportunity now to effectively help grow an entire office in, yep. in Adelaide and have a national focus for developing asset management within a within a multinational company. Yeah, so certainly, and if, if, if that's where you think you perform best and, and what you prefer, you've really started to focus in on that. Because I know that I suppose there's two things where you could say, I'm not very good at A, B and C, but I'm good at D and E, so I'm going to focus more on A, B and C, whereas I, I think I've started right. to go to the point where I know I'm good at D and E, Yep. So I'll be aware of A and B, but I'm going to f- start to focus on D and E. That's, that's what I, I feel I'm good at. That's what I can master. I that's what right. I can lead in it. Uh, start to hone down on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, from that perspective, I, I enjoy business development. I enjoy managing a, a team and an office and, and building a, a relationship. You know, that that's what I enjoy doing. The, the technical side for me is uh, I, I understand it, but it's not the core part of what I do, and I certainly don't see myself ever doing any um, deterioration modelling in, yeah. in D terms yep. or anything like that. I, I understand it, I appreciate the, the qualities that that has and the type of people that do it, um, but I also know that I'm probably not very good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in, men, in mentoring some of the, the people, some of the, the younger folk, how do you go about doing it, or, or what do you, what do you find helps from right. their point of for being yeah. a, a, someone being mentored? I guess a lot of it comes down to the way that I would want to have been treated uh, as a graduate, and indeed I was. I, I had some great managers in the early part of my career, um, and working for a council was certainly part of that. One of the things I found um, that can be quite limiting when you join the private sector as a graduate is that you often get pigeonholed. Um, mm-hmm. You're a cheap resource and you're often employed to do a single or a couple of tasks at a time. And you don't really grow yourself professionally. You might become very good at designing couplings or um, yeah. you know, doing a road design or something like that, but you're not exposed to the wider parts of the business, like doing a, a, a tender brief, um, responding to tenders, uh, doing some project management, yeah, understanding the, the financials. Yep. You know the actual business side of things and and I suspect that I try to to do a little bit of that when I have my graduates in house I or new people that I take in I, I like to understand what they've done or what they'd like to do and then also try and get them to understand that when you come out of particular university you, you have some great skills and you've got some great knowledge but there's also this whole other side that you've never been exposed to. And, and the only way to get people to understand and appreciate that is to involve them in those different things. So I will typically take um, a graduate uh, with me to client meetings sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'll get them to help respond to tenders, get them it to is. help do the pricing on certain things, understand how project management works, what that means for us as a business, as well as then look at their technical capabilities and find out where they'd like to see themselves. And usually there's a bit of resistance, um, mm-hmm. you know, up front, because uh, as we've discussed, a lot of um, engineers come out and they, they feel like, right, I've done four years, I'm ready to design the Burj Khalifa. And yeah. um, the, the reality is, Russell, that's not going to happen. You, you might be lucky if you get to design the banister on the ground floor of yeah. the Burj Khalifa. Yeah. That would be, you know your crowning moment in a project like that. Um, and really that's because you, you haven't earned the right. 
uh, and I think you have to go in with a, a positive attitude, as I said, be open to opportunities and doing things. Don't walk into your place of business on your first day and start demanding certain things um, because you haven't really earned that right yet. Yeah, that's what I've also kind of listened to a lot about. There, there is so much about leadership, but a, a certain amount is about followership and that it, it's your role to learn, absorb. It's Absolutely. your job to get yeah. along with your boss, not your boss. And, has and to I'm, get along with you and really yeah, pay your dues. Sure. And, and I guess that there's a lot in that statement that I agree with because you, you enter a workforce and it's it's a relationship from day one. And in many respects, your education only begins when you start working because yeah. there's some things that you can't be taught at university. And one of those things is, um, you know, managing a client. <laughs> yeah. you, you learn that by time on the job and you're not going to get better at it unless you do it. And, and sometimes that means learning some, some hard lessons, Russell. Yeah. Well, how do you, for graduates or, or in recruiting people, mm-hmm. what do you look for? Or, or how, what's the... Good question. How does, how does someone stand out to you? I suppose the first thing I look for is somebody that I can talk to in, in, and have yeah, a conversation it, it, with. It sounds like you're assuming everyone's going to have that technical ability that's right focus on what, what else do you bring to the table absolutely and i think it's important that when when you recruit somebody into an office environment you're recruiting a team player it's no good having somebody that's insular and introverted and it might be technically brilliant at what they do but the fact that they're unable to communicate and get along with their staff is not a good thing <laughs> it only breeds a certain type of contempt in the office yeah. and you as you mentioned it, everyone comes in with a certain technical ability but personality is a huge part that I look for so having someone that I can have a conversation with like this understanding what you do outside of work is important because that that's an important balance in you in your yeah. career really um, and, and I suppose that's I, I also like people that know what they want but are open to trying new things and having that agile type I guess personality and flexibility uh, when you first start is is key to your career. Uh, if you go in with a very rigid framework of what you want to do and achieve, sure you might you might get into designing something where you mm-hmm. might become very good at one item, but you're going to limit yourself in your career for the rest of your life. Yeah. So say if you had, particularly in the market at the moment, lots of people looking for work. So you, you have a hundred applications, every single one of them's designed the banister and the bird Khalifa. Yeah. How would one of them, how would three stand out that you decide you're going to interview? I guess to? it's pretty hard when you have a hundred CVs on your desk. So the first thing that I, I normally start to do is look through the, the cover letter. And, and usually the cover letter tells me a lot more about the person than the CV. So people typically start to tell you a little bit in the cover letter about mm-hmm. I'm part of this association and I thrive in this type of environment and these are my aspirations in my career. And I suppose those aspirations are the things that I'm interested in. You know, yeah, okay. you know if, if you tell me that you, you would love to be part of a dynamic team and that you know, you've typically done this in the past but you really are keen to try something new, then you've kind of got my attention. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Not, I got 99 at high school. I got high distinctions yeah. at uni. That's right. I, I'm not really interested in a number of, 
particularly graduates when they they submit something they'll give me their transcript um great like i'm really pleased that you did well in your final year yeah. and that but unfortunately it counts for very little once you get into the marketplace oh, because indeed. Yep. you know when i'm tendering for a job i can't put your transcript in there and go oh well you know um Boyd over here has, you know, yeah. uh, achieved uh, distinctions in all four of his subjects in his final year and Dean's recommendation, that's great. But clients are typically going to say, but he's never designed anything in the yeah. world. Yeah, he's hostile, angry. Yeah, that's right. Along with. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, what are, some of the, what are some of the mistakes that you've seen graduates or younger people when they get into the workforce do perhaps i'm getting the theme is it a bit of that overconfidence yeah yeah i i I think you know if we look at it from that first sort of interview phase um going back a few years with the mining boom in australia and the boom in general uh graduates could pick and choose the job that they wanted and and so they, they had the luxury of you know pushing salaries and certain sort of benefits and that the markets changed completely and, and I remember thinking when I graduated from my masters there were 800 engineering graduates across undergrad masters and PhD level in the room that night and I remember thinking to myself where are these 800 people going to get jobs because not I was one of the few that actually had a job at the time and I was working and studying part-time the reality is you've got to set yourself apart Russell yep. um, and I think I might have actually avoided your question there. <laughs> no, that's, no, that's good. Uh, well, what's the what's the biggest blunder you've seen a, a oh, new guy make? I, I had an individual come in for an interview once, and um, instantly we got talking about salaries, which is a big no-no. Yeah, you that's don't, interesting. It's it's almost like that first date scenario again. You don't. You don't talk about when you're going to get lucky on your first date, okay? <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with, with engineering. This, this isn't Tinder. You don't swipe right or left kind of thing. You know, you've got to sit down and, and you've got to talk through um, what you want and what you So they've like come in and do. talked about salaries. That's right. You know, I mean, I, they come in and, and sort of said, well, I, I've been told that I can earn this much and I can have a car and I can have a cell phone and all the rest of it. And um, that's really probably going to be the biggest turnoff in an interview yes. for me because I have to sit there and go, well, if that that's all you want, why don't you just apply for my job? Yeah. You know, that's the reality. And again, it's coming back to that. You need to be a little bit, um, just take yourself down a level and realize that you're starting in a new environment. You are the new fish in the very, very big yeah. pond. Well... I guess having having been overseas some different places as well, I'm sure you can tell it tell a funny story about one or two people that have messed up in the past or a, a younger sure. engineer. So sure. without it necessarily getting back or burning bridges <laughs> in the house. So. Um, well, I, I do have a particular story in mind, Russell, and um, it involves a, an engineer who was taking on a, his first project on his own, and mm-hmm. it was a very simple intersection line marking upgrade that was occurring and he had done the design and he had arranged for the contractor to come in overnight and and implement these uh, line markings that he had stipulated and I suppose a little bit overconfident and a lesson in project management as well because although technically perfect and managed well to a certain point he forgot to explain the design to the contractor 
And what eventuated was overnight the contractor had taken the design and effectively um, laid it out exactly as per the instructions, uh, which unfortunately uh, in the design had included all the tracking lines and curves for the lanes through the intersection. Yeah, so he forgot to turn that layer off. He forgot to turn that layer off uh, because he thought it was self-explanatory to the uh, to the line marking contractor yeah. who had asked previously, is this exactly what you want? And of course he had said, yes, don't deviate from the plan. Do this exactly as per my instructions. Yeah. So he marked it out in exactly that manner. It must have taken ages to do it. At 5 a.m. the next morning, uh, there were frantic phone calls from the police as all kinds of mayhem ensued at this intersection with um, vehicles and trucks not knowing what lines to follow through this uh, mayhem of tracking curves. That had, Spaghetti uh, been, junction. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't the biggest intersection, but it was a multi-lane um, four-way intersection. And it was signal controlled, but uh, it just confused people as to the guide through the intersection yeah and um i guess a valuable lesson because he he had to get out there with that same contractor and get them to black out all the tracking lines again <laughs> which would have been a cost to the project and probably a lesson in humility for him that Big time. you need to um explain things because what's apparent to you isn't always apparent to somebody else russ yeah Jeez. Well, it would have made the news though, surely. So. Oh, I don't think it made the news that day, thankfully, but it, I think it was quite embarrassing and did. Um, I think he might have even won the Wally of the Week award for that kind of. Uh, nice. No. <laughs> yeah, you've got to celebrate your weaker points too. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, getting away from the work side of things, mm -hmm. I suppose. Uh, particularly because you're you've worked with your wife in the office you're both in the engineering field uh, obviously you got a, a child now so things might be slightly different but yeah. what would a typical work day look like for you like what's a bit of a routine you go through sure um, so we, we get up pretty early we try to get up before our daughter gets up in the morning so that we can get ready and by the time she wakes up we're in a position to uh, you know dress her feed mm -hmm. her and we're fortunate to have somebody who lives in and actually looks after our daughter during the day. So we leave for work at about seven in the morning. Yep. And I drop my wife off at work and be in the office at my desk usually by 7.30. Um, I actually eat breakfast at work. Um, and what that allows me to do is respond to emails that have come in overnight or um, just get a few things done. Uh, and typically once I've done that, I might go and read the morning papers because what I'm involved in in terms of an asset management and engineering management type field is highly dependent on funding from the government sector. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard someone else say about, yeah. talking to Chris, yeah. Okay. Read the paper, get the... That's right. What's going on. And so I'll look, read the financial reviews and then I'll, I might go and check some of the forums and that. But I will then quickly shift my focus to a list of things in my um, task list for the day. So I use uh, Outlook to... Yep plan all my meetings, um, things that need to be delivered by a certain date, reports, tenders, that kind of thing, and figure out what I need to do today. And that might be anything from checking a tender's website and downloading relevant tenders to myself, mm -hmm. to actually phoning up people and asking them for uh, various bits of information that we can include for a tender that we're about to submit. Um, and on top of that, that normally gets to me about nine o'clock, I, I suppose, in yep. the morning. And then it's time to start my day properly and actually start 
going to meet with people in a business uh, development type capacity. It might be site meetings. Um, it, it might be actually attending a, a Consult Australia breakfast or an industry event. But still, you'd, you'd probably say 75% of your key tasks and yep. jobs yes. are done before some of the other people are actually getting into work. Yeah, well, that's the only way that you can really manage it. And I guess, you know, everyone's employed to do a 38-hour week, but the reality is you need to put in more hours than that if you want to get ahead and actually be on top of things. So <laughs> your day never really stops. I mean, that, that's the thing. And the only way to manage that is to ensure that you, you know what's coming up and, and have that planned out, have some sort of attack program, Russell. Yeah. But the thing I'd like to point out is that Probably 70% of my day is, is usually around just business management, tender, mm-hmm. procurement, that kind of stuff. And then if I'm working on a project, very seldom does that take up my whole day. I can't afford for it to, yeah. to be realistic. Well, with tight time, are there any techniques you use in terms of uh, like phone calls yes. like offline time emails yep. i mean i mean if you yep. have emails from me you probably know they're yep. spaced out into one or two sentences dot points here's a couple of things i've looked at yes. here's a couple of the issues here are a couple of the questions that's I, right. if it's more than half a page i'll go through and delete it that's right. Because I'm always wary that someone's going to read the email, someone's going to respond. I don't want to just have a brain dump. It's going that, to be... That's right. And, and I guess in that instance, if it's going to be long and waffly like that, then you either don't really know what you are trying to convey, be yep. succinct in an email, get to the point quickly. And if it needs to be longer than that, find them or go and see them. That, those are my techniques because you just when you're talking to somebody you can gain a whole lot more information than you can over an email where things can be misconstrued and and that can lead to some serious misunderstandings or expectations on projects so um, certainly face-to-face conversations are my preference mm-hmm. phone calls are probably second and after each one of those events I will always back it up with an email to say just to confirm this That's is what we've time. agreed this yeah. is what the outcome is is that your understanding too? And that works quite well usually. Um, however, there's always things that come in from left field as well that you just can't manage in that capacity and you just have to take it as it comes along. And that's where being able to delegate certain things to supporting members mm-hmm. and having that confidence in them to do it, it plays a huge part in running a successful office. So do you also find having such a strict routine in the morning that if something comes out of left field, at 10 in the morning on a Wednesday you've already you've already got ahead from that morning responded to the people you need to and got underway yeah I suppose um, I'd, I'd like to think that that was always the case um, but the reality is that sometimes those things happen and you have to deal with it on the spot mm. and part of your job is to to just suck it up and get on with it um, so that might mean putting in a bit of extra time that evening while you're yeah. at home once the kids are gone to bed, you know, I mean, I, I got an email last night from a structural engineer who sent the, I guess, a brief for a document at 10.30 last night. Yeah. Okay. So he's obviously not had the time to do that during the day because he got caught up doing other things, but he knows that I need that today. So he's made an effort to get that done. I really appreciate that. And it makes me want to reciprocate doing the same thing for him in the future. Yep. You know, so 
it's a sort of camaraderie and and yes it's no one likes to work on weekends or on weeknights mm. and that kind of thing but the reality is um when you're in a business like this you have to yeah so is there any other uh tools or application you use for keeping track of things or, or sure. note taking and yeah um i suppose in terms of managing things we, we do have a system that manages all of our time and our projects and um, offers of service, I guess, that we might put out there. Yep. And it's all logged with a, a nationwide project code where you can see who's working on a job and what sort of point it's at. And Really? So in, in real time, you can see well, it, Boyd is working on this, yes. John is working on that. That, that's here's right. Um, here's the budget. The only thing with that is that you can only see it on a week-by-week -week basis unless okay. you employ, uh, I guess, a, a rule that everyone updates their timesheet daily because that's how these things are managed. And you, then you can get an understanding of what tasks have been delivered that day or what, what effort has gone into securing that particular item. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we can look at it weekly or typically monthly for an invoicing point of view, but also to understand how projects are tracking and progressing. And a lot of consultancies and, and businesses use this these type of systems uh, for work management and employee utilization and productivity. So would you also do that in meeting with clients? Is that recorded against the set up or do you have something something separate i mean i mean yeah. i guess there is that like i guess i'd use something like evernote where you can yeah. actually record the business sure. card yes. it's got the word recognition so you could go i can't remember that guy but i know yeah he did yeah. structural search for structural people do use evernote cards. i mean it's not one of the the tools that i typically use um but things like linkedin help a lot in that capacity um Ipwea as a forum helps uh, tremendously in sort of answering those things and managing that those sort of well that's interesting would you if you would in meeting with someone would you do a bit of research beforehand on linkedin yes. or would yes okay yes, yes okay. absolutely i mean i i think it's it's diligent to understand who you're meeting and have an understanding of what their capacity is because yep. if you don't know that you can't really market to them in a language that they understand okay so that's interesting by the time you've met them you've already got a bit of an idea absolutely so then even by the time you come back that's right you're pretty well informed and i should point out that you know particularly when you meet state and local governments um and not many people seem to be aware of this but there are financial and strategic plans that you can read mm -hmm. uh, and you can start to get a flavor for what's going on in those organizations and really if you're going to go in there and, and be a true partner you need to understand their business you yeah. have to there's no point in just approaching someone and saying i can do all these things i can provide all these services and that's they might go well, that that's great but actually what we want is a is a landscaper yeah okay you know so why, why waste their time so you you've probably already done the research looking at their annual business plan saying oh, i see you had 100 grand set aside for absolutely window washing absolutely you say, do you yeah. do you happen to be in the market for a window washer that's right okay. and just so happens i have john over here who's a window washer what do you yeah. know you know okay. and, and that's that's the way that I like to go about these things, you know, cold calling and just knocking on doors without any understanding of what your client's needs and wants are is going to be very hard and possibly demoralizing. Yeah, 
you know, target your opportunities. And I think that there's a lesson in that, Russell, that I believe in working smart. You know, it's good to work hard, mm-hmm. but if you don't work smart, you'll just end up running around on a wheel like a hamster and yep. you won't achieve anything. And, and, and I see that a lot in the industry where people that you meet, you ask them, how are you going? Oh, I'm flat out. I'm so busy. I'm, you know, and, and you sit there and like, what are you actually Yeah, like it's, a, like it's a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. And that's the thing. If you find yourself consistently working 16-hour days, you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, that's fine during a project or a certain point of time. But if you're consistently doing that, then there's something that's not quite right. Either you need some help or you need to find a better way to do it. Yeah. And, and really, I, I have to say, I've had to do this a couple of times. You can't see the wood from the trees. You have to stop, sit back and go, is there a better way to do this? And that's challenging yourself, you know, like, because if you don't do that, you'll just end up spinning your wheels and yeah. you won't go anywhere. No. So also, in terms of optimizing your time, I would typically, on the way to work and on the way home from work, like I might have the radio on, listen to a podcast, something. But other than I'm thinking about what am I going to do when I get into work or wrapping up the jobs. So usually if you're going to get emails from me or stuff, it'll be at eight, 8 in the morning with some dot points from what I've thought of or in the evening. Here's what I've thought of dot, dot, dot at 6 o'clock at night because I've had half an hour of quiet time sitting in traffic. So I think you're a bit the same. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a 35 minute drive to work in the morning and probably a bit longer than that in the in the evening going home. And it, it's just the way I'm wired where I, I continually think about what I've done during the day and what I need to do for the next day. Yeah, and that, that's a good and a bad thing at the same time because uh, I, you need to learn to switch off sometimes. But uh, I find it quite useful, particularly in the morning when I'm planning out my day, what do I need to do? How am I going to go about that? Just starting to prepare myself mentally for what that meeting might entail or how that situation might evolve. You know, I really don't like sitting in meetings where a question might come up that I haven't thought about mm-hmm. because I like to give a reasoned response in most instances. And, uh, you know, sometimes you are caught off guard. And in that instance, you have to say, well, yeah, that's a really good point. I might have to go and have a look at that and research it a bit more. But you've got to be in that frame of mind. Don't sit there go, I don't know. Because yeah, okay. there's nothing worse when you're a consulting engineer sitting in front of a client and they go, well, what about if we did this? And your consulting engineer says, oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's okay. a really bad look. You okay. know, um, Rather say, that's a good point, that's a good outcome. But you, you won't be in that frame of mind unless you've thought about how that meeting might go. You know, and be open to the opportunity that maybe there is a better way to do something. Yeah. So how do you how do you switch off then? If you if yeah. when you get up, you've looked at some tasks, you've done some emails, you've yeah. come in and had breakfast while you're working. Yeah. It seems like it's straight to it. When you get home, how do you really I, the <laughs> switch off? Oh. It's a good what do you question. do for breakfast, by the way, in the office? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I might bring in... I see some <laughs> tins of tuna with chilli, but... Uh, oh, look, uh, I bring which in... Which is funny, when my mum my was away and my dad, we were like, oh, do you want to come over for dinner? Because yeah. mum's not there. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm okay. And it, I think basically for two weeks, he just ate tuna with lettuce. <laughs> a tin of tuna and lettuce. Is like, I'm doing fine. <laughs> yeah, getting my essential nutrients in. <laughs> 
Uh, break, breakfasts are interesting, Russell. I, I tend to be a man of habit, so it's usually a couple of sachets of Uncle Toby's oats um, with yeah. a coffee, something that I can have on the run with a, a nut bar or something like that. Um, but, you know, your question regarding how do I turn off when I get home, well, I guess having a child helps you because yeah. the moment you walk in the door, you've got to be focused on their needs and what they, they need and get them ready for bed and dinner and all the rest of it. But it's, a, it's an interesting thing, and it happened to me recently where there was a big tender that we were submitting, mm. and I'd been sort of thinking about it subconsciously, and I woke up at about 3 a.m. on Sunday morning with this realization that there was a different way that we could do something, and that the information that I needed was with somebody else. It's not ideal. It's far from ideal, yeah. because I, I, it's the last thing you want to be thinking about, but you, you know, you've got to make the most of those opportunities as well and I, I was able to get that point across and I think we, we might actually have a successful outcome there but the point is so does that happen often because I know I've got a I've had a director and he'll do the same you get an email at 2am yep. and that's because yep. he'll you just be subconscious and he'll, go, he'll have got up and he's like I have to shoot off this email or I know some people that have just yep. a little notepad because yep. I know sometimes I've had the same I wake up and go oh that's a brilliant idea and I wake up in the morning Sure. And it's like I vaguely remember <laughs> what it was, but nothing. Whereas if I've got a little notepad, I can just have a scribble. I, I wish I could say I was as diligent as that in terms of you know sending off an email or writing down notes, but I've got a pretty good memory by virtue of just, I don't know, having a good memory. Yeah. But there, the idea is that you know I'd like to switch off, um, but you can't it's not one of those things when you you're involved in this kind of work and there's so many different things happening all the time the best you can do is just put it out of sight and out of mind for a little bit and that's what I try to do by having other activities on the weekends and evenings and um, and to a large extent uh, I think if you're managing your, your workload and you're doing the things that you need to do during the week it makes it easier to turn off on the weekends because you have confidence in the fact that things are going well. But also if you enjoy it, I think sometimes probably people are like, why did I get an email from him at seven o'clock or on Sunday? Because yeah. he's not doing it. It's like, no, but that's because I've thought of it. It's a good yeah. idea. I enjoy it. I'm looking forward to the reward. The two minutes it's taken to send me an email, that's probably right. find quite satisfying. I haven't sat down, set aside an hour. And, and, I, and started churning away at boring work tasks. Absolutely. And I, and I suppose when it starts to feel onerous is when you have a project that isn't going well or you've got a particular client that's quite demanding or difficult, mm -hmm. that's when it starts to eat into you negatively on weekends. And uh, the only way to deal with that is to be even more prepared than you would normally be. So you have to make sure that you... Not that you shouldn't anyway, but you need to be on top of that because mm -hmm. they're asking those questions because they are worried about a certain risk or they're worried about delivery of a project or maybe the particular contents of what it is that you're delivering. And you, you have to provide that confidence. You know, mm -hmm. It's the same as if you're having works done in your own home. You're having your kitchen replaced and there's, there's an item that you're not quite happy with you're probably going to be pushing pretty hard to get some, yeah. some results on that. And it's not a personal thing. That's that's a very important thing that I'd like to touch on is that very seldom do I find that it's a personal issue that mm -hmm. people have with an, an individual. 
it's more about a particular objective within a job that isn't going well or in a project that they don't particularly understand. It's the onus is on you as the engineer and yep. as the consulting engineer in that case to to provide that confidence back. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Biggest achievement? Gee, I don't know if I can point to one biggest achievement, Russell. Um, I think for myself personally, it was completing my master's um, yeah. because working and undertaking a master's was pretty difficult for me. Um, but at the same time, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, did you find it, particularly when I did my master's, university, you're not quite sure where you're going, you slack off, but by the time I was working, doing the master's at the same time, I really enjoyed it because I could see I could see how I can apply this subject to my right. job, enjoy it, I'm a bit better at researching and managing my time. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that that was a great part. I had a taught master's program, which I highly recommend, yep. um, because the subjects allowed you to actually interact on certain things and, and have those debates. And, and by virtue of being one of the older members in that master's class, I was able to contribute from an actual works perspective, yeah, which probably isn't ideal from an academic point of view because they're trying to teach a concept and then you're coming in and saying, well, that's not quite how it works. But yes, for the point of this conversation, we'll go along with that. However, I found that doing the master's also... Um, really allowed me to, to get into some of the aspects of day-to-day um, -day work that I hadn't previously thought about and apply some of those techniques. And I was I was actually applying some of those things while I was working, which, which helped a lot, really. Yeah. 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 Gold. Well, I'm wary of the time. So was, uh... well, I will share one other story with you before you go, Russell. And, yeah. Um, when I worked in the UK one of the things we had to cover was levels of service supplied by councils. Yeah. And um, this particular individual was in charge of parks and maintenance and, and that sort of side of things. And um, within the, the sort of parkland areas in the UK, there'll be sections of grass that are left to grow a little bit longer than usual because that's where people's dogs can go and, yeah. you know, do their business. You don't have snakes. No, you don't have snakes <laughs> or anything, but you, you wouldn't want to go walking through those tall areas of grass. Yeah. However, they still have to be maintained to a decent level, both in the areas that people play in and where the dogs go. And I, I remember asking the question, so how do you achieve a level of service or how do you set a level of service for your, your grass maintenance? And the chap I was talking to was an older gentleman and been doing it for so many years. And he said, it's easy. I said, oh, really? Well, what do you do? And he said, oh, basically I wait for four, three complaints to come through for a single area. And then I'll go out and I'll mow the lawn. Mate. <laughs> and, and it was quite structured. It, it was very structured. And the thing about it that I found amusing was, although I was left in disbelief and, and sort of questioning it for a few moments, he was dead right. Yeah. yeah, because it, at the end of the day, it's grass, and, and it's what the customer. It's what the wants. customer you, wants. You're not saying I'm going to cut it to this length every no. month. No, and you, what would be the point in that? Yeah. That would have been a complete overinvestment in his grassland areas. Yeah. So he was meeting customer expectations and adequately optimizing his his budget for for the mowing of those areas. I can't fault it. I think it, it was a brilliant outcome and I had to laugh about it and I still do and I love telling the story to my um, clients now because it demonstrates that we're, we, we need to meet 
what the expectation is for that particular asset or that particular project. And if you if you go in with a gold-plated solution when really what's only required is a lead-plated one, um, you're, you're really not doing... Well, I think that's probably phases. the thing a lot of councils are getting around, that we're saying let's reseal at this point that curb's in terrible condition let's do that let's do the footpaths and when you when i've talked to some of the community no one mentions road no one mentions curbs all they care is about do i have a footpath i can walk to the shops from they don't even necessarily care what condition it is can i walk to the shops i don't care about the road stormwater anything else but i think we've got this perception that 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 road looks in crummy condition i better go out and reseal it reconstruct it the curb's got some lifting but never mind that it's on five percent slope and the water flows anyway uh, i have a gut feel we probably over service things well that's an interesting point russell because when i worked in auckland i must say that the the infrastructure was exceptionally well maintained and you know, the slides are sort of cracking or writing on a road and you'd see a crew out there in a, in a month or so to, to deal with yeah. that sort of problem. And and they have a very high level of service and you can probably justify that from a safety perspective because of the extra wet weather that they have and so the roads need to be maintained to a higher standard. But when I moved to Australia, I, and certainly on visits to Australia, I noticed that the quality of the road networks was it was poorer. It really was poorer, particularly in cities. And, that. Oh, and the thing that it was more amazing was that people didn't really seem to care. So it forced me to start thinking about perhaps perhaps in New Zealand we were over-maintaining those yeah. networks. Perhaps we were investing more than we needed to invest. But looking at the road networks around me here um, and knowing what people's expectations are, I think it's just about providing... A service that's safe and convenient uh, and you know whether that that's got some cracks or some writing it might not look <laughs> great but people don't actually seem my to my father-in-law really always goes on about the the french they view very flat roads great roads they're very flat i'm like <laughs> what is flat <laughs> I, uh, I don't know well that's right uh, anyway that's probably a good no, 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 to stop no, and thanks, thanks trevor no worries thank you very much it. russell thank you